We are beginning a three-week series today called Rich Toward God, and it's out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. For this morning, we will just take verses 13 through 21. And this section in Luke's Gospel, and I should say Luke's Gospel in general, deals with the theme of money and possessions more than the others, but this section deals in particular with these topics of money and possessions. You might say, well, why are we going to talk about this? Well, I would say like this. It is a matter of discipleship. For those of us who know Jesus and walk with him and follow him, this is a central issue in all of our lives that reflects our relationship to the living God. The way that we deal with money and possessions, uh, how we relate to those and relate to God and relate to one another in our world, these are important matters. I should say as well, this is not a series in response to a crisis or an acute need, just to put that out of your minds. By God's grace and mercy, we've had a good and strong year, and, and the Lord has blessed this church um, year after year with much provision for which we are grateful. But it is something that is perennially important to discuss. It should be a part of our regular diet as disciples of Jesus to engage in these matters. Now, if you're new or if you're new to Christianity or if you're just wondering who Jesus is, you probably are a little disheartened that I'm now saying we're going to talk a little bit about money. And I do want to be clear with all of you, if you're in that position, that God does not need or want your money. He wants your life, your heart, all of you. And so if you're at the point where you haven't yet grasped the love of God for you, the grace of God in Christ for you through his death and the death and resurrection of his son, uh, then I want to caution you as we walk through this not to mishear these things. They, they come downstream from our yielding of our entire lives and hearts to him as Lord and King. And when we yield all of ourselves, and that includes our money and our possessions and the way that we relate to those things. So I hope that you can hear these things as downstream from first just considering, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is he in fact the Lord of the world who's calling you to repentance and faith? One fear when we come to this topic is that there are many around the, both in history and even today who use the word of God and the guise of ministry for profit. Uh, we often associate televangelists, you know, with, with these things as well. And, and that's a legitimate concern. But I'm afraid that sometimes that concern about coming across a certain way can sometimes be a barrier to the church actually courageously and boldly and plainly talking about matters that are central and important in our lives of discipleship. So we're not leaning into that, care, that, that um, misportrayal of the church, which is, all, there, there, is, there are dimensions of people who use the name of Jesus for profit and gain. That is not what we're about in this church that has nothing to do with the, the good news of Jesus. And yet, we are disciples of Jesus, and so this is something we need to engage in and talk about uh, as well. Uh, this section that we're studying for the next Three weeks ends with a very well-known saying, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Which means that the topic of treasure, money and possessions, has significant pull and influence in our lives. It just does. And so it's not a surprise that this is sometimes seen as a taboo subject that we shouldn't talk about. Because often I don't think we want to confront the reality that it can mess around with our hearts in certain ways and cause us to be disordered and, and distorted. And so uh, I just acknowledge there can be resistance to this topic. But, you know, Jesus loves us too much to not deal with this. Jesus talks a lot about money and possessions during his earthly ministry. 
He wants us to beware of the idolatry and the enslavement around these things. And we get a stern warning in our passage today, as we'll see. And consider this with me. If Jesus spent so much of his ministry talking about money and possessions and greed in the first century, in a context where the culture was largely agrarian and most people were probably subsistence farmers, what if he were to walk around 21st century America in the wealthiest and most affluent nation in the history of the world, where most of us have discretionary income, even those of us who don't, and you know, nobody, let's just get this clear, nobody thinks they're rich. I recognize when we say who's rich, we all think of other people. There's always somebody higher in the ladder. But the reality is most of us have discretionary income, which we can spend on things like lattes at Starbucks and a new cell phone and various things like that. So if Jesus was walking around in this culture, perhaps he would say that much more to us about this topic, or at least he would say, please listen to what I said 2,000 years ago. So that's what we're aiming to do. This is very important. Let me give you a critical thought experiment. If all someone knew about you was your financial records, would they know that you were a disciple of Jesus? Now, I realize our financial lives are very private. The reality is we all deal with money, every single one of us in this room, whether we have it or we don't, we deal with it and we make decisions about it all the time. And I, and I think it's a helpful thought experiment to ask if that's all somebody knew about me is they saw the ledger. Could they, would they conclude that there was something about this man or woman that was oriented to a different way of living, oriented to a king named Jesus? I'd like to hope and believe that they would. And if you wonder if that's the case right now, then I hope this message is just, these three weeks is just an encouragement to grow more and more to maturity in Jesus such that that would be true because I believe that should be true for us if we are walking in repentance and faith with Jesus. Actually relating to God and worshiping God has always included as a central element our money and possessions. And the simple uh, illustration I'd give for this is the Old Testament sacrificial system. That was a costly system. They were sacrificing animals day after day after day, week after week. And animals were the, they were the capital of the day. That was their wealth. And they were laying it before God as a means of worshiping him. So this has always been a part of true worship in following God is the use of our resources and our possessions. My aim simply in tackling this topic together over the next three weeks is to expose a pernicious and pervasive lie that we are all prone to believe and in, as a result of doing so, to more deeply root us in the genuine life of God, the abundant life that God has called us to enter into in his son. So as we begin with verses 13 through 21 in Luke 12, we want to see three things. First, what it means to be rich toward God. And then second, the lie or temptation that threatens this way of life. And then third and finally, the folly of storing up treasure for ourselves. So first, what does it mean to be rich toward God? The way our passage ends, and I'll start at the end in verse 21, is after having told a, a powerful little parable, Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's verse 21. And Jesus is telling us that the goal here as disciples in relation to our money and possessions is to be rich toward God. So we have to ask, what does this mean? The setting of the parable that Jesus tells us is dealing with surplus. 
in verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the question we're dealing with here is this, what do you do when the Lord gives you surplus? Now, this man was already rich, and then he has a, a plentiful production in his fields. And so he at least has, he, he probably already has some surplus, but he has now more and greater surplus. And the question is, do we use our surplus on ourselves? Or do we use it in a manner that is consistent with God's designs? And there is this question of ownership underneath any discussion of these matters in Christian discipleship. And the pronouns in this parable are quite telling. My crops, my grain, my goods, my soul, says this rich man. But in fact, they are God's crops, God's grain, God's goods. And as we see in the end, of course, God's life or soul that is required back from this man. So the central and key question for us in relation to our stuff is not what do we want? In this rich man's case, it was bigger barns. But is rather what does God, who alone is life, who owns everything, what does God want us to do with his stuff? That's the fundamental question of Christian stewardship. When we understand our lives in reference to God, when we understand all that we have as a gift from him on loan to us to use in accordance with his purposes and plans, that will change our use of what has been entrusted to us. It's not ours, it's his. In 1742, a Lutheran pastor, Johann Bengel, wrote this. He is rich toward God who uses and enjoys his riches in the way that God would have him. What does God want me to do with his stuff? What is your first thought when you are blessed with more? In my late 20s, I was living in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and I was on my way walking to see a friend at his office, and I, I came across a $100 bill just laying on the sidewalk. And there was no one else around, so there wasn't any way for me to turn it in anybody. So I considered this God's gracious gift to me, and picked up the $100 bill, and I walked in to meet this friend of mine. He was the son of a pastor that I knew in town. He was a few years younger than me. His name was Ewan. And I told him the good news of my find because I was pretty excited about it. And then he said these words to me that I've never forgotten because they were a sting to my soul. And he said them without a hint of self-righteousness. He was a lovely young man who loved God. He said, Mark, I wonder why God has entrusted you with $100 and what he wants you to do with it. And, you know, I'd just been thinking about all the cool things that I could get and what I might, you know, have fun with this. But it was this sincere question from a sincere brother who had genuine faith. And I was genuinely pinned by the question. I remember feeling so ashamed that I hadn't already thought about that question in the few minutes since I picked up the $100 and ended up sitting in his office. What does God want you and I to do with the surplus that he's entrusted to us? That is the question. And the answer, and there are many different answers in the scriptures from saving and spending, but here in this parable, the answer is he doesn't want you to store it up for yourself. It is to use the surplus for the Lord's sake, to be rich toward him. And this is what it means to be rich toward God. It means not storing up what he gives us for ourselves, for selfish ends, but using it in accordance with his heart and his desires, in accordance with the truth that God and God alone is life, 
and that money and possessions are not. It means as a first point of consideration about our material possessions and our money, saying, God, what do you want me to do with this stuff? How would this bring you great glory and honor? That's the question that we're asking. And to ask that question repeatedly and to walk in that way regularly is what it means to be rich toward God. So let's turn secondly to the temptation that threatens this way of life, that keeps us from living a life that is rich toward God. And Jesus makes this clear as our text begins. He actually gets a request from someone in the crowd as we open up in verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This issue of disputed inheritance, most likely it's about land, is an issue that, uh, that was wrecking families of that day and that wrecks families of this day just as well, doesn't it? The issue of inheritance and inherited wealth. And uh, this question isn't out of place. Rabbis were knowledgeable in the law and they were often expected to be prepared to make pronouncements on legal judgments. And so the man sees Jesus as a teaching rabbi and asks him this question. But it's interesting that Jesus refuses to take the role of judge or arbitrator in this man's life. And Jesus' response, which opens with the words man, actually connotes a kind of disapproval of this man's one-sided demand for justice. We don't know where the brother is. It doesn't seem that he's around. And behind these disputes around inheritance is often a misplaced love for or trust in possessions and wealth that can do violence to relationships. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm not going to perpetuate the division in this family. In fact, I came to reconcile, came to bring people together. But Jesus will go to the deeper issue of the heart that is behind this man's question. Isn't that, just as a quick aside, isn't that often the way Jesus works with us? You know, we bring a question or a concern to him and he says, hey, good question, good concern. Let me show you what that reveals about your heart that I need to work on in you. And that's what he's doing here with this man is he's going to this deeper level. And in verse 15, he gives not only this man, but all the crowd that's listening some tremendous wisdom. Verse 15, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So what is the temptation that keeps us from living a life that is rich toward God? In this text, it's declared as covetousness, word that, a word that also gets translated as greed. And it means really this insatiable desire for more, 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 for having more than one's due. And underneath this drive is the belief that this more is the key to greater life or joy or peace, or rest, or security. Life is bound up in wealth and possessions, in what we have, and in the more, therefore, that we can acquire. And the tempting equation for this way of thinking is greater possessions equals greater life. Greater possessions equals greater life. And that should sound familiar because this is honestly the essential, one of the essential doctrines in our materialistic age. It's a doctrine over which billions of dollars are spent every year to get you to believe this and to walk in this way in our lives. If they were prone to covetousness in a society long ago that didn't have much discretionary income or Amazon.com, then how much more are we? With a simple click of buy now, we are 48 hours or less away from having the next new thing in our hands. But this way of life is a shattered version of true life. As Jesus in the second half of verse 15 says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If we look for life from possessions or wealth, we will be sorely disappointed. 
And we all know this. Experience teaches us this lesson. We all know wealthy people who are quite miserable, and we know people who have very little, who seem to be very content and joyful. Life is not in our possessions. Who of us has not had the experience of putting some hope in the joy in life that we might squeeze out of a new purchase only to find that after the initial thrill subsides, life just hasn't changed at all. It didn't fix anything. And wait, isn't there an updated version now anyway that I need to go out and get? I have a distinct memory of my dad teaching my brothers and me when we were younger from his own experience about this. He, he told us about getting a brand new Robin Egg Blue 1958 Chevy Impala on the occasion of his graduation from high school at the age of 17. And he thought that life would be complete once he got that gift. Yeah, it is an extraordinary gift. Once he got that <laughs> gift. It's not the way we lived growing up. Um, and he said... To us as, as young boys at the time, he said, you know, I remember a couple of months later that I was sitting in my house and I was miserable. Nothing had changed. I still had the same issues and problems. And after the initial thrill of driving it around for a while, it didn't do anything in my life. And, and really, God spoke to him in that time. It was a powerful lesson in his life that he passed on to us as his sons. And we all have a story like that in our own way. We all know that life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions, but for some reason, even though we know this, don't we? We have a tendency to, to believe it, to walk in that path. Blaise Pascal actually points out the folly of this in humanity. He says, you know, there's a, this futility in our lives. He acknowledges that there was once a true happiness in man, he says, of which now all that remains is an empty print and trace. And the true happiness, he's referring to our state before the fall when we were joyfully united with God and one another and his creation in the way that we were meant to be. There's just an empty print and trace. And then Pascal writes, this he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, this void that now exists, seeking in things that are not there the help that he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. He says our folly is we already have stuff and we know it doesn't bring us life. We already have possessions and we know they don't bring us life. But somehow we begin to think that the things that we don't yet have are going to do for us what the things we already have don't do. And we do it anyway. Only God can do this. Only God can give us the life and rest and peace and security that we long for. It's no surprise that in Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul unabashedly calls greed or covetousness, it's the same word there, as idolatry. Idolatry is putting something that is not God in the place of God and expecting from that thing the joy that only God can give. And we can turn anything in the created order into an idol. Love, sex, family, success, and on and on. But money has always been a front runner in this idolatry race. It's always been a front runner of false worship. So much so that you'll remember that Jesus explicitly teaches us that you cannot serve both God and money. Against this kind of idolatry, this lie about possessions, Jesus urges us, doesn't he, to watch ourselves carefully. Look back at verse 15. Take care, he says, and be on your guard. The two words underneath, take care and be on your guard, both point to being on alert. Think of prison guards at the perimeter of the prison, always watching and scanning, looking for someone or anything that shouldn't be there. This false way of thinking, this temptation, this lie can easily dupe our hearts, Jesus says. So beware, be on alert, watch carefully, do the rounds, be zealous about this. Because even though you know better, 
even though I know better. We're all tempted to come under the sway of this lie and to stop living a life that is rich toward God and to believe a possessions or life kind of mindset, live a, a mindset like that. Again, if it was so easy to do back then, how much easier is it to do today when we have so much and so many different ways of justifying our use of it on ourselves? So let's move then thirdly to the folly of storing up treasures for ourselves and this little parable that's so brilliant that Jesus uses to illustrate the wisdom of verse 15. As we've seen, the rich man's crops produced plentifully, Jesus said, and the question that he's wrestling with in verse 17 is this, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And in verse 18, we hear his solution to his dilemma. The dilemma of what to do with the surplus. I will do this, he says. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. His plan is to store up his goods so that he can sit poolside and drink fruity drinks to the end of his days. But things take a dramatic turn in this little parable in verse 20 with these two words that are some of my favorite words in all of scripture. They come up again and again in different ways, but here they are. But God. Verse 20. But God. God who made the crops to grow. God who gave this man strength and life and industry to produce wealth. Did you hear that in Deuteronomy 8? Do you not think that it is from yourselves that you have the power to produce wealth? It is God who has given you the ability and the industry and the energy to be able to make wealth, which is a gift. God, this God intervenes and says to this man, and you know, what do we want to hear when we meet God? Well done good and faithful servant. What does this man hear when he meets God? Fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus is a masterful teller of parables. And the way he tells this parable takes us on a little bit of a journey because we initially start to envy this man and his abundant crops, don't we? In the sense of a life without financial worry, a life that has much into our old age, a life where we don't have concerns about paying the bills. And then we're shaken by this abrupt ending of the parable. The abrupt ending of his life, which necessitates a giving of an account of himself and his self-centered actions to God. It's like watching a bird in beautiful flight suddenly hit a window and fall to the ground. It's jarring and shocking. And mostly because we know it's true, don't we? This parable encourages us to think about the present from the perspective of the end. We know that God is life. God is hope. God is joy. The only real way to relax, eat, drink, and be merry, to be really at peace, is to belong body and soul to God himself, which means to live for him in the present day with all that we have, all that he's entrusted to us. We know, don't we, that the man's years of indulgence would actually be empty, unsatisfying, 
and that the use of goods exclusively on himself would cause the joy that he seeks to elude him and would be, in the end, wasteful. It's a lie that building bigger barns and filling them with the goods of this world, be they money or success or power or comfort, is going to satisfy. So why do we keep trying? Conventional wisdom says, build bigger barns. We don't need convincing to do that. It comes quite naturally to us, doesn't it, if we're honest? When our investments grow, we reinvest in more investments. When our income rises, we put more in our retirement funds or whatever chosen method, our chosen method of security might be. When the opportunity presents itself, we get more appreciating assets. And of course, and I want to be careful here and say that it, it needs to be said that there is wisdom, biblically endorsed wisdom, in being prudent and thinking about the needs of the future and doing things like saving, even for retirement. None of these things are inherently sinful. Scripture teaches us to be wise and to save for the sake of future anticipated or unexpected needs. Proverbs 21.20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. A foolish man, out of his lack of self-discipline, out of his indulgence and his need to, 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 to satisfy all of his desires in the moment, he, he spends everything he's got, but a wise man puts things away for the unknown of the future. Proverbs 6 endorses the ant as a model to us because the ant gathers food in the summer and at harvest for the sake of winter when there will be scarcity. And we are called to emulate these examples. It is foolish not to prepare for the future. But there is a difference. There is a difference between wise and responsible saving and self-centered worldly hoarding or stockpiling. And discerning this difference is a crucial matter with which all of us must wrestle in our lives. Do our practices of saving and investing portray a covetous mindset, an attempt to squeeze security and life from possessions? Or do they display a clear conviction that God and God alone is life and that we are living for eternity with him as his children who know deeply, and this is next week, who know deeply that he cares for us. It's a question that we need to all wrestle with in the depth of our hearts, with our spouse if we're married, maybe even with some close friends that we can trust. I realize that finances is such a private issue, but perhaps to help us grow, we, we, we are called to bring these things more into the light with one another. It's a matter of priority and emphasis, really. A matter of the posture of the heart. It's more than that, too. It's about actions, of course. We can't just look away, though, from Jesus' exposure of this rich man and not realize that there is something here for us to wrestle with deeply as well. Most of us don't need convincing to be prudent. I mean, some of us probably do. But most of us know what it means to, be, to thoughtfully save and put away resources. But I'm guessing all of us desperately need a renewed challenge to have the perspective of eternity about our lives and our stuff. To remember that it's actually not our stuff at all, that it is God's which he has entrusted to us. And to be reminded of the power that this stuff can have to pull us away from a life that is rich toward God or the amazing opportunity that this stuff can provide for us to reflect 
a life that is rich toward God. Several years ago, I was having a conversation with a, a very wealthy land, the very wealthy landlord of my office in Back Bay. I'd been there for years. He was in his late 70s. We had developed a mutual respect and friendship, even though he was a, a secular man, doesn't believe in God, and he knew I was a pastor. And we ended up having a conversation about money, and I, I made some comment that I thought money was overrated or something like that. And, and he proceeded to tell me just how money was so important in his life. He said, money means everything to me because money is the means by which I get to live the life that I want to live. And Mark, I don't think there is anything else. I think that when this life is over, it's over. And so I wanna go places and do things and experience things and money is the way that I can do that. Makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that if this is all there is, then sure, you know, build bigger barns and eat, drink, and be merry in the ways that the world says will bring you life. We know, of course, that that doesn't actually bring life. But for so many, money is the oil that lets the engine of life run. And the temptation is that we make this world our home. And we spend accordingly. That what this man was doing makes sense if, all the, if that's all there is. But the truth of God's word says this, and I'm drawing here to a close, Hebrews 13. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. When the author of Hebrews makes that point, he then immediately says and exhorts us to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If we are mere, merely pilgrims passing through, if we've not yet arrived, then we will not build and stockpile in this present world as if this is all that we have. Yes, we will save and be wise in the use of our money and possessions, but we will not hoard as if Possessions can give us something that we know they can't, as if this is our lasting city. Both Job and Ecclesiastes remind us and bear witness to the fact that naked a man comes from his mother's womb and naked he departs. He can take nothing with him from his labor in his hand. To invest only in the here and now for ourselves and maybe for our family too is to forget God. It is to forget eternity. It is to seize control instead of surrender. It is to be the master, not the steward. It is to be the settled resident and not the pilgrim passing through. No, the calling is to be rich toward God, to reject the life that is life is, a, to reject the lie that life is about our possessions and to do with our resources what God wants us to do with them. And let me just close, why would we not? I realize we all have to wrestle with these things, but why would we not? We who have been saved and rescued and redeemed and forgiven by the radical generosity and grace of our God. Do you know at the heart of the Christian life is the sense of gift? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave, them up for us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The heart of the Christian faith is gift. God has given us a tremendous gift in his son. God has given us an un, un, unmatchable gift in the life that he pours out into us by his Holy Spirit. And we now get to live that life in the present day. Why would we not live richly toward him? Take care and be on your guard. We have a different way, a different hope, a different place to build. A God who is alive and well, who calls us to be rich toward him. And this is our privilege by his grace. May we respond to his gift in our lives by loosening our grip on the things of this world, our possessions and our surpluses, and being open-handed 
as a conduit of his purposes to glorify him and to bless others. This is the true, exciting, and rewarding life to live. To watch what God will do with his stuff. To glorify his name as we become agents of his will and work in the world. Let's be rich toward God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. And we know we all have areas to grow in this. God, we know our hearts are prone to believe the doctrine of the day instead of the doctrine of your word. And we cry out to you for mercy and grace. We cry out to you to make us aware of the places where we have just stored up for ourselves instead of being rich toward you. We are sorry, O oh God. We ask for your forgiveness and we cry out for your empowerment to live a new, a new way that reflects your glory and goodness, your lavish provision. We love you. Jesus, we thank you that you love us enough to speak to us about these hard things. We are grateful and we pray these things in your name. Amen.